Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Space, a podcast brought to you by the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. Okay, hello. Uh, welcome back to T-Sauce, or The Sound of Space. Um, today we have an interview guest with us, so we're bringing back the interviews with real professionals. Yes! <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and with us we've got uh, Cam. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Cam Dickinson. I'm uh, MDA Brampton's uh, Chief Planetary Scientist. I also do uh, systems engineering. Should we call you doctor? You uh, if you want to, if, yeah, you and my grandmother can both call me doctor, sure. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> perfect. So, uh, Cam, I guess, you know, what do you do specifically at MDA and, you know, how did you kind of get to where you are now? Um. Yeah, maybe I'll start with how I got there and uh, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what I do. Sure. So I kind of got really uh, first unlucky and then kind of lucky. I, I did my doctorate in um, physical chemistry in a field called uh, laser spectroscopy. So spectroscopy was really, really popular around 1930. And then it has sort of a renaissance around 1960 when the lasers invented. And then I come along and uh, I, I think I did the last project. I'm pretty sure of that. So sort of like an academic posting was probably not kind of not going to happen or it was a long shot. So I ended up taking a postdoc. Um, this is where I got lucky. Um, I did a postdoc on a, a Mars mission. It was called the Phoenix Mars Scout. And I was on the science team and kind of used my background in lasers to uh, look at a, a, an atmospheric LIDAR that was being built for this, this uh, lander near the North Pole of Mars. And so I started out doing modeling um, of the performance of the LIDAR and sort of what dust and clouds it could possibly see, um, you know, given the, the parameters that, that we were, we had, you know, that went into building it. And while I was working on that, I, um, I started getting on telecons and, and was getting interested in sort of how the instrument was going to be operated. And uh, this was Canada's first sort of planetary mission um, where they had contributed an instrument, as far as I know. And um, so I got kind of got sucked into the ops side of, of things and um, became kind of one of the people that was leading the effort to operate this instrument uh, on the surface of Mars. And that, that was for uh, MDA at the time? No, no, I was, I was at Dalhousie University at the time. And then, okay. uh, yeah, and then I switched over to York University when operations began. The PI was a prof by the name of Jim Whiteway out of York. York. Um, so I switched over to, to that. And then uh, the operations were done at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And it was kind of guided by JPL. And uh, so it was an amazing experience. I got to hang out with the JPLers and they taught me so much about, you know, operations and stuff like that. Um, and then um, when that kind of finished up and it's got some papers out and stuff, then the money dried up. And, and I had to get a real job. And then I kind of got a real job. Um, <laughs> yeah. I got sucked into MDA who had built the, the LIDAR system. So I was involved kind of before it launched in the commissioning of it and the, the sort of uh, characterization of the system. And so I met some of the engineers at MDA. And, um, and so they, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job at MDA. And, and I was hired um, primarily to do sort of like um, university liaising, and, um, but, you know, sort of on a day-to-day -day basis, I was doing more systems engineering. And since then, I've been um, 
mostly doing, you know, systems engineering, but I still keep kind of uh, uh, a hand in, in what goes on at different universities, a uh, little bit of teaching at University of Toronto. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to keep up with the different research areas in planetary science throughout Canada. Yeah, you taught Catan last semester. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll teach me next semester. <laughs> Running the uh, aerospace capstone at the university. So a bunch of us have taken the course with Cam. So uh, any listeners at University of Toronto, uh, if you're ever going to take the aerospace capstone, you might meet Cam. <laughs> did you enjoy it? Did you did you like it? Oh, yeah, it was it was fun. It was a lot of work for sure. Yeah, uh, because uh, it's. Yeah. You oh, guys well, did well I mean, at it too, so that was great. Yeah, we did. We did, but it was uh, four people basically trying to do the job of a lot of people. <laughs> so yeah. um, it was. But it was definitely. I, I learned a lot, and I think uh, at the systems aspect, like you mentioned, that you were working with and bringing that uh, to us was kind of uh, very helpful because now I, after that, especially, I kind of felt like I understood a bit more about how things actually happen happen um, yeah. in like a big big project like we took we talk a lot about these huge space projects but you know they're too big to do in one go yeah it's hard to it's hard to know when you just start with an idea like i, I want to go and you know drive around on the surface of mercury all the way through to how do you actually make that happen so it's it's awesome just to uh i know i always get a lot of energy from the students and teaching it and sort of um uh, working like with student interns and stuff like that, just because um, everyone's always keen and and uh, you know wanting to learn stuff and and kind of open minds and so yeah. So that project that you were on, the first one, were you on it from beginning to end? Um, the Phoenix almost. It, the Phoenix one started. Um, it had just started around the time I was hired, I think it might've been like six or eight months in but when I got yeah. hired. So I was around for most of it. I wasn't really working on the development side. It was all on the science team side. Yeah. And then when I switched over to MDA, then all the work that I've done on planetary science has been more on the engineering side. Yeah. Did, did it work? <laughs> yeah, it was. So um, it doesn't get much more Canadian than this, but basically we detected um, well, okay. So the laser was the first time a laser was ever operated from the surface of another planet. So that's pretty cool. And then cool. it's, it's the first time that, um, snow, snow falling to the surface of another planet was ever directly measured. Oh, wow. So that was, <laughs> that is very that was pretty sick. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we just needed to have like a Timbits and maybe sort of a, a yeah. shimmy game going on in the background <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of world records under your belt. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so on your, I guess, you know, now you're, you're at MDA at this point, right? So do you, do you want to explain a bit about what, I guess, MDA does and I guess maybe their position in the both the global space industry and the Canadian space industry? Yeah, sure. So uh, MDA has, um, it's, it's gone by a few different names and it's, it's this different companies have sort of bought different divisions over the years. So the division that I work at, um, it used to be called SPAR Aerospace, which was for special products and advanced research. And um, it's basically the birthplace of Canadarm and then Canadarm2 and soon to be Canadarm3. So um, space robotics is the forte for the division Brampton. Um, 
uh, it, like, the, you know, these, these, um, these huge projects like Canada Arm 1 and 2 and 3 are more like generational, you know, uh, projects. They, they come around like every 20 years. So um, in between these projects, the, the, the division sort of branched out uh, into a number of different domains. So one of them was things like optics and looking at cameras. And then things like uh, LIDAR systems, like the atmospheric LIDAR and um, OSIRIS-REx LIDAR and um, a few other ones. And then it's also sort of, you know, so it's kind of branched out beyond the, the robotics area. Robotics is still the, the primary core, but um, there's sort of like a lot of sensors that um, go along with that technology that are sort of... Um, augmented like that augmented technology that are proven useful so yeah and yeah. since since you mentioned osiris rex we know you played a huge role on that um first could you tell us what that stands for what does osiris rex stand i, for? I cannot i do not remember the acronym it's, not, I mean, it's like origins species. i have it written oh, down so i'm testing well, you there actually. you go <laughs> yeah yeah it ends in it ends in regolith explorer yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it talks about the I think the, the S is security uh, spectral interpretation. <laughs> You're close enough. Spectral interpretation. <laughs> there, we go. there we go. Yeah. So it's it's um there was a okay, so so Osiris Rex is a NASA led mission. Um and it was to go collect a sample from an asteroid called Bennu. And um, but it had a lot of different goals to it. So the primary one, of course, is to return the sample. And the cool thing about Bennu is that it's basically a time capsule from about 4 billion years ago when the solar system first uh, was evolving. And it's just been floating out in space since then. So, I mean, to get a piece of this, you're really looking at what our early solar system looked like. Um, but it also had sort of secondary goals about things like it's it was um, before, uh, like ultimately water was detected on it, but it was presumed that water was going to be present. And this is this goes to things like uh, in situ um, uh, resource utilizations. Yeah, so so like resources on asteroids, like um, water. We would think of water like for drinking, but its primary use in in this context is actually as a propellant. So it's like a gas station basically, and there's tons and tons of water on this asteroid. Um, there's also things like security, which is the uh, there's a one in I think it's like four thousand chance. In the year twenty one eighty two, I think um, that it could hit the Earth. Um, I mean, so, we won't be here. So, yeah, yeah, um, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's just to kind of it's just to kind of understand yeah. what what that would look like and and can we do anything about it? So there was a lot of things about studying the orbit of it um, uh, of Bennu around the Sun and just understanding all the different factors that go into its orbit, understanding you know. Um, like what its composition is and then moving towards things like, you know, if we wanted to divert it, um, you know, whether we could or not. So, um, so yeah, so the, um, the, the Canadian space agency basically commissioned, um, or they, they got, uh, this instrument onto the NASA mission. Uh, the, the contribution was a scanning, uh, laser altimeter or LIDAR system. And, um, I started off as the, um, uh, systems lead uh, slash sort of science lead. So I was kind of responsible for keeping the science team happy as well as doing things like uh, requirements management. And then as the role, uh, sorry, as the project evolved, uh, so did my role. And then by the time we got past our, or just coming up to our critical design, 
uh, and through that, I um, ended up taking over the technical lead role. So I was kind of like the, um, the technical lead role is kind of like the ultimate customer, but at the same time, you're kind of leading the team in terms of ensuring that it meets its performance requirements. And, um, and, and so I, I did things like worked on the calibration of the, the unit. And then I was really lucky that I got to stay on and do operations again. So uh, that was fantastic. And, and um, so I've kind of, for Osiris Rex, I started right at the very, uh, almost, almost the very beginning. There's sort of like, there's a two-step process to get selected. And I started just at the end of step one um, and then all the way through step two. And then finally it was selected and then all through the, uh, the design and sort of build and manufacturing of the unit and commissioning it and testing it. Um, I slept under a TVAC chamber at York University High School, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then uh, and then basically the operations of it. So I've kind of seen like cradle uh, to not quite grave yet because it's actually going to go off and explore a second asteroid called Apophis. Oh, really? Twenty twenty nine. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So so when you guys like graduate and then you come work at MDA. <laughs> then, <laughs> Then, then one of the missions that you can come work on is uh, the uh, it's called the Cyrus Apex, and it's going to be the follow-on mission to this to a second asteroid. So that's going to. I yeah. didn't know that it, there was uh, anything a coming after. Yeah. It. yeah, yeah. So a lot of the missions. That's what's amazing is you have a functional spacecraft. You don't have to launch it, and like mm. you know, launch is one of the you know, and and commissioning of it is you know some of the riskiest parts of some of these missions. So as long as there's tons of fuel and and in fact, you don't actually need that much fuel because the um, the speed, yeah. yeah, the 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 speed that it's going around the sun is kind of the same. You just have to match it up with mm -hmm. another asteroid, and away you go. So it drops the sample off in September twenty fourth of this year. It's coming up, um, and then uh, off it, it just basically it's like a drive by shooting and drops this <laughs> off into the Utah <laughs> desert, and then it and then it just keeps going to the second asteroid. It, like it doesn't even slow down. It doesn't even slow down. So it's just yeah, go for it. Oh my so. goodness. Well, what was the timeline like for the project? Like from like the proposal process to twenty. So I yeah. So around twenty ten um, is when it. Uh, I think it was selected in twenty eleven. So um, I think I think around two thousand nine. Um, it went basically the first proposal went in and then it got selected in 2011 and then um it was delivered in uh to the spacecraft team at lockheed martin in denver in uh, late 2015 and then it launched in september of 2016. Uh, it arrives at Bennu in december of 2018 and it operates there um, and finally collects the sample in um, october of 2020 and then it departs in May of 2021, and now it's just about to come back. So that is great memory. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I guess it's your like baby. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah. The instrument's called Ola, the Osiris Rex Laser Altimeter, and she's. Uh, I mean, it was a whole team, uh, you know, that that really brought it together, and um, it was an absolute like, you know, fantastic opportunity to be able to work with that team. Um, it's the, the engineering, you know, that goes into it and just the, the, also on the spacecraft side, uh, it's an absolute amazing experience to be able to, um, you know, just every, every meeting you go to, you're learning something new about products that go into space. And I love that. I love just sitting there and it's like, oh, well, that's what paint does when you, you, you know, 
get radiate like it's hit with radiation didn't know that or yeah, but you know, then you'll remember is, uh, it once you see it happen yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 so yeah just absolutely um a phenomenal phenomenal experience so so you mentioned uh ola so i mean let's dive a bit more into the instrument itself so uh you know you mentioned it being some kind of uh laser uh you know range like it was a, a laser kind of device right so yeah um what was its, I guess, a purpose on Osiris Rex, and um, you know, what was it designed to do? Okay, okay. So, uh, so the the technology is is called uh, lidar, which is kind of like radar but with lasers. So that's like the L in lidar, um, and it works a mm -hmm. lot. And in fact, it's the same technology that the police use when they catch you speeding. Um, they send yeah. they send a pulse of light, and instead of uh, and it bounces off your windshield and comes back to the handheld unit and the time that it takes to go and come back, they can calculate how far away you are. And if they take a few measurements then they can calculate your speed and tell you that the basic concept for this is just the speed of light is known. And just, you know, how, if you know what the speed of light is and you can measure the time very precisely to go there and come back, you can tell how far away it is. So, so how this works is um, there's a laser beam that hits uh, a mirror that, and the mirror is articulated left, right, up, down. And um, so you can kind of scan it over the surface and you, you pulse the laser light and you start every time the pulse goes out, you start the clock. And when the pulse comes back, you stop the clock and that tells you the range. So for each pulse, um, you get basically a range measurement and then you read out the angles that the mirror is at when that pulse went out. And maybe the angle, the mirror moves just a little bit from one pulse to the next. So you just keep recording those positions and eventually you build up. Um, this whole series of data of angles and ranges. And from that, you can calculate out, um, if you know where the spacecraft is at that time, you can calculate out in three-dimensional space where the asteroid is. And you build up this, um, it's called the topo topographic map or like a digital elevation map of the, the surface of the asteroid. And it's like a 3D scan of the entire surface. So you're seeing things like boulders and, um, you know, um, craters and sort of the, you know, and if you do this enough times, you get, you get the overall uh, shape of the entire asteroid. And, and what's really cool for, uh, for this is that we, when we scanned uh, Bennu using the system, we laid down um, uh, somewhere on the order of about, um, I think it was 3 billion shots and we know Bennu to like every four centimeters on average. <laughs> and, and it's, it is now the, the solar system's most precisely surveyed object, like in, in our solar system. Like we, th we know this object better than, than any other thing in the solar system in terms of its three dimensional aspects. Including so, earth uh, or is this not including, including earth? <laughs> what yeah I mean, well earth's a lot bigger right? i mean earth yeah, is no, huge no, yeah 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 so so we don't know the whole earth like to four centimeters <laughs> so oh my goodness so yeah yeah how yeah, big yeah. is Bennu yeah. actually i i don't know that it it's about uh 500 meters in diameter okay uh so it's 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 pretty big yeah um, it's not tiny but it's um um but still like it's you know on, on the scale of planets and stuff like that it's, it's not very it's it's kind of tiny so so um, one challenge, I guess, with lidars usually too is, uh, I guess, until recently was kind of size, right? So was that ever a problem for you guys, or was that one of the design challenges as well? Because um, I know, especially with three D lidar, 
until recently it was like these big big things that you know they used on top of like cars and stuff right well um so um so this this slider system for a number of different reasons it was about 22 kilograms which is actually for a, a, a planetary science instrument is you know she's she's pretty big um <laughs> And and the thing is, is that there's a few different reasons for that. One is um, there's things like radiation shielding. Yeah. Um, two is just the structure to hold everything together, like the optics, so that they don't go for a ride and break and stuff like that. Um, and so we weren't, we did have mass constraints, but it wasn't as bad as other ones, like the Mars ones. Um, you know, the, the one that went to the surface of Mars, I think, total all up weighed about one kilo and that um and this was like you know 20 times that so yeah. it it it's it you know it there wasn't as much effort put into mass reducing than than other missions and it's just because the size of the spacecraft was pretty big and they had a bit more it was a bit more roomy it's not to say that they let us go crazy with the mass because usually these missions are really constrained but mm-hmm. um but but it was enough like that we were able to to do this and so the big the, the big ones or the big things in the past have always been things like lasers um and the, the the miniaturization of the lasers with time has really helped with that um you know so it doesn't you don't need to have like big clunky laser systems it's they're, they're quite mm-hmm. you know elegant now so small. well i guess yeah also compared to the mars ones they probably don't have to do edl so i guess uh yeah also probably yeah. helps <laughs> yeah that's right uh, so I guess kind of uh, following up on some of the, uh, I guess, functions of uh, Ola, what, what kind of things did it help you know, scientists discover about Bennu and in general? Yeah, so, so when Ola was designed and when the mission got started, um, they took measurements of this thing called thermal inertia, which is you take the temperature of the surface as it rotates and it goes in and out of the sun. And based on those measurements, they thought that the surface was going to be kind of like rolling sand dunes, nice and flat and sort of, you know, so things like sampling would have been pretty straightforward. And, you know, even taking LIDAR measurements would have been pretty straightforward. And then if you look up pictures of what Bennu actually looks like, and to bring this full circle back to the Canadiana part, it looks like a Timbit. Um, Canadiana, <laughs> is that what you just said? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's like a, a sugar encrusted uh, timbit, but its surface was really rocky and bouldery, mm-hmm. um, and and so this was really unexpected. And and um, and and there's a couple of knock on effects. One was um, the performance of Ola wasn't as good to begin with as we thought it was it still worked but it wasn't as good and it's just because the boulders basically ate all the photons it just swallowed up the photons oh interesting so it, it goes it would go into the, the light would go into the cracks and kind of never come out so that's right. one but but the biggest thing was the threat to the sample collection and so um so ola actually you know because it provides surface um you know features and 3d uh, surface features it was like one of the primary instruments that helped pick the um, eventual site for what was called the, the touch and go. Um, you don't actually land on the surface of Bennu because of the microgravity, you kind of float down and s- gently crash into it and then take off again. And so there, <laughs> you they, just bounce, they only kinda. found, you kind of lightly bounce into it. You yeah. just, yeah. 
Um, they, they only found four potential landing sites. Two of them were really like really the landing sites and of which um, got very lucky on the first try and, and got the sample from that one. But, but the site had to have very specific characteristics of, um, you know, it had to be flat enough uh, so that this, this thing, uh, the, the spacecraft as it comes down with the sample acquisition mechanism, it wasn't going to get racked up on the boulders, for example. There was material there that it could, um, because again, it was, they were thinking it was going to be almost like kind of like sandy. Um, instead, it's kind of chunky and blocky. They, mm -hmm. they wanted to make sure the material was small enough that it would actually go into that mechanism. And then there's things like, uh, as soon as it touches, it's going to probably dip to one side or another, and they don't want the solar panels, which are kind of like, it looks like wings on a bird. You don't want the wings to kind of touch into the dirt and then get stuck and sort of not, you, you'd be having a bad day at that point. So all of those factors went into the uh, the tag site, the touch and go site, um, where the, the sample was collected. And, and so Ola was, um, pardon the pun, but instrumental in, uh -huh. um, in, in helping uh, find that site so they um yeah so so you know scouring the surface for for literally weeks and months uh trying to figure out how to do this uh, was a huge huge part of uh, what what ola provided um on top of that it's basic you know sort of scientific instrument interest for things like you know uh surface roughness um it provides like a 3d model of the entire uh, uh you know asteroid um, so you can do things like, you know, the mass from gravity, like from the gravity measurements from its orbit. And so with the 3D shape, you can get the density of it, things like that. Um, you know, other, are there craters on the surface and sort of crater counts and things like that as well. So. so it was like very, very crucial to the main, like the sample collection portion of the mission. Yeah. 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 Uh yeah. It ended up being, uh, yeah, super, super important to, uh, uh, to allow them to sort of, you know, find that spot and just sort of uh, come in and collect it. So, yeah. what was um, what was the ops side like for the for Ola? Yeah, yeah, that's a really cool question. So, um, because it's so far away, so the asteroid um, orbits between the 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 orbits of Earth and Mars, and it kind of is in that that zone. And so depending on where it is, um, you know, we, we can try and talk directly to the spacecraft, um, but it still takes time for the, the, the radio waves to leave Earth and get to the spacecraft and come back. So there's not any real method for doing anything in real time where you can talk to it and, and in real time have it do stuff. So everything has to be pre-scripted, pre which means that you determine ahead of time what maneuvers you're going to do and um, and, and how you're going to, for example, fire the, the laser system and what scans and what types of scans you're going to do. And so, so, so everything has to be sort of coordinated ahead of time very carefully in terms of how you, when do you power on, what are you going to do, like what sort of scan you're going to do, when do you power off, what do you do with the data. Um, and it makes, you have to make sure that you don't use more power than you think you're going to use and you're not going to go make create more data than you know the spacecraft can hold because that's actually another consideration um and then and then they have this antenna which they point back at the earth and they uh they um they basically then dump the data back down to earth at periodic times and and, and then a new batch of commands or, or uh, scripts would go up to the spacecraft to tell it what to do next 
So you have to so, be kind of like a fortune teller for the for the instrument. <laughs> yeah, you have to have really good predictions of where yeah. you're going to be and and what you know. And and there's sort of minor tweaks and corrections because you'll get to a certain point and you go, oh, we're not exactly there. We're really close, but mm-hmm. so there'd be sort of late updates and stuff like that, and you'd have to sort of account for that. Um, and then you know, so you have to really. Um, you know, so there's a lot of coordination, especially on the spacecraft side and its position. Um, the, the, the whole mission sort of um, operations architecture is you start off further away and then you slowly get closer and closer. And as you do, you start to understand the gravity field that exists around the asteroid better and better. And so then your orbital predictions get better and better. And eventually you can get into like an orbit that is more or less stable and you can take a lot of measurements from those positions and as you get closer and then eventually you, you understand it so well that you, you, when you go in for the sample acquisition that you you're super confident that you're going to be able to hit it. So what, what was kind of like the autonomy level for operations for, you know, I guess Osiris Rex in general, like, I guess what you're, what you're talking about, like uploading commands and, you know, trying to predict and all that. Um, was there a del- major delays? Was it difficult to operate? uh directly was it largely autonomous that kind of thing yeah so it was it was what would be coined as semi-autonomous um so humans made the decisions on where to what orbit to pick how you know how close to get to the asteroid um you know which direction to point towards the asteroid but the um but once you're in those positions then you would almost kick off like a bunch of measurements like camera images would just be um done it would be pre-scripted, so there wasn't, um, you know, the, the spacecraft itself wasn't making the decisions of how to take the pictures, but all of those decisions would have been made by ground uh, personnel ahead of time, and they would have known, like, what camera settings or what LiDAR settings to put in there, and then um, basically they would have, uh, you know, so it would be almost like taking off, like, let's say, six hours of things that you want to do, boom, 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 and just steps through the the, the the each of the different instruments one at a time and 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 it executes those all those commands faithfully and then hits the stop button and then says okay what do you want me to do next uh, and then you know human operators would have to come in and go okay now here's the next batch so was there like a, a major delay in in those kinds of communication yeah the light time i think it was up to you know it's kind of mars like and be up to like 20 minutes round trip um okay but but oftentimes you weren't talking in that sort of mode. Uh, most ninety nine percent of the time, you would just push the commands up and it would send the data back kind of in one direction. Mm. Um, There's only a couple times when things like you'd you'd actually be almost in real time sending commands up, um, and and those were quite rare actually. Did you ever have any like scares or like really frustrating moment? Well, okay, so we had, um, so most uh, electronics are sensitive to the radiation environment. Mm-hmm. And we had our onboard computer reset because it got dinged with um, uh, some sort of radiation particle. And so it, it basically freezes and then suddenly the data just stops and you're like left wondering what's happened. And um, with, with that, just by simply turning the unit off and on, um, it, it resets itself and kind of clears here's the, the fault. Um, the other thing that happened was Ola went up with two lasers. One was like a, 
a much more uh, higher energy laser that was used for greater distances, but it the 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 rep rate or the time between laser pulses was kind of um, shorter. It, it worked at about 100 times per second. Um, and the second laser um, was for up close and personal, and it went at about 10,000 times per second. And and so so you get a lot more data, obviously, with the the 10,000 ones per second, but um, the, the the energy is a bit lower. And what happened was we we were so kind of successful in, in doing these scans and laying down these three billion points. We we exceeded sort of the lifetime of the the laser, and and unfortunately, uh, it 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 didn't make it right through to the end. We were only about about an hour and a half, I think, of of scan time left uh, for the whole mission, and unfortunately, the laser oh, kind of cacked out. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean. Don't get me wrong; it, it fulfilled its primary mission, and and yeah. and we were we, we were kind of on borrowed time, and and it was one of those things where it's like, hey, we we got a lot of good stuff, and it's like, well, let's keep going, and just you know, um, but lasers are life limited items, and it's a known thing that they don't uh, last forever. So, it it was sad, so, but the other one's still working great, so uh, we still have that. And that's the one that's going to continue on the next yeah. Yeah. loop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so I guess maybe uh, turning a bit towards some more uh, future, I guess, kind of problems and or I guess opportunities will be. So w w what's actually going to happen towards uh, or with the sample capsule that will return to Earth? In like September. what what kind of, yeah. Yeah, September. yeah. So so what happens is this, um, so it, if you followed the the sort of when it was collected, um, the the idea was to go and sort of estimate how much sample was in there, and they took pictures of this thing. It was almost like a selfie. They turned the sample acquisition mechanism towards the camera and took a selfie, and all they saw was these particles escaping all over the place. And it was like, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so they, they just very very quickly made the decision just to stow it. So there's probably a, a bit of a mess inside the sample capsule where everything was supposed to be contained, but they just kind of rammed it in there and said, just lock it down and send it back home. So what happens is this sample um, uh, return capsule lands in the Utah desert, and then um, it immediately gets, um, there's a helicopter team that goes out, and it, once it's located, and um, immediately they take it back to a clean room, hook it up to nitrogen gas purge to, to keep it pure. And then within 24 hours, it's at Johnson Space Center in Houston. Um, and there they've, they've, they've practiced, I think, three times in, um, uh, on how to carefully disassemble the whole mechanism, just slowly kind of one piece at a time to ensure that sample doesn't, you know, go anywhere. Um, and they, they literally want every last grain of sample that they can possibly get. And so they, they've rehearsed and rehearsed how to take this, uh, you know, apart in such a way that it maximizes the return of the sample. And, and um, actually, this is what, one of the cool aspects of this is that Canada, by contributing this instrument to this mission, we actually get a percentage of the sample that comes back. Um, and so that will come and will be archived or, sorry, I should say curated at the Canadian Space Agency in um, St. Hubert in, in Montreal, in, near Montreal. And so, so you know, in, as part of this effort to take it apart and to catalog the sample um, and then, you know, 
look at the different sort of compositional elements of it and sort of what what materials are in there and then Canada gets kind of like they try to carve it up as neat as they can so we get one percent of you know the different types of samples that are uh, contained in that um, and and this is a whole other like what's amazing about this mission is the scales of it like we're talking like kilometers away or you know hundreds of thousands of kilometers away from this asteroid and we're taking pictures and then we get all the way down to you know touching it and then this thing comes back and now they're going to look at things on literally the micron scale and they're looking at little tiny little specks of um you know space dust that have been captured in uh in the matrix of, of the material that's present on the asteroid and they're going to dissect them all one at a time and just look at every little piece of it because that's you know um basically our early solar system is all formed from like dust right that, that's clumped together so that's what you would expect to see is like really fine grain dust that's sort of just huddled together um and that's uh that's what we're going to find on on the sample so so i guess as someone i mean you sound definitely very uh excited for it to come back so as someone who was very invested throughout the whole lifetime of this mission kind of what does it mean to you to be part of the like mission that has brought back this sample like uh, personally? Yeah, so me personally, I I mean I I have a great deal of pride in in you know the the work that our team did. Um, we did a great job, and uh, I'm definitely, yeah, you did you know, good job. Definitely proud of that. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, I I'm 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 really happy because this is like a, a Canadian first, right? So this is the first time Canada's gonna get sample from another uh you know another kind of body in our solar system and uh, you know uh we helped make that happen so we you know we uh for me personally it's 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 exciting to see you know the the planetary exploration community in canada growing and just seeing you know all these things that we're doing that are just amazing and, and sort of first for canada and how you know and like from my perspective, I just want to see it grow. And I want to see like people like you two go out and get really cool jobs, you know, in Canada and, and, and stay here and just sort of like, you know, and, and uh, basically, um, you know, and find the next mission that was going to be amazing. And whether it's an engineering type mission or it's more of a science type mission, um, it's kind of all the same to me. It's just about, you know, sort of pushing the envelope and, and using Canadian technology that we're good at uh, in different applications for this. So, yeah, I, I, I am very passionate about sort of, um, not only the results of this mission, but, you know, like team members on this will go off and do other type, uh, you know, other types of missions and they'll take that, that training and that expertise that they learned off of Osiris Rex. And just like I started with Phoenix and then went on to Osiris Rex, all the lessons that I learned, you know, tried to apply as many as I could from one to the, the next. And, that's the idea. We just keep going and just keep training people. And every time, you know, every time we do one of these, we get better and better at it. So, yeah. And like every new discovery just propagates into more, you know, cause they can find out so much more about the history of the universe. So like, yeah, like you said, like scientists are going to be interested in this, like geologists, um, engineers for the technology aspect. So, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and we're all just, um, you know, we're like a lot of people that do this, they, it's they, you know, seeing the results of it, and, you know, people are going to study this sample for decades or even centuries. So it's exciting to be part of that, that entire community. 
Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully you don't lose too much of it though <laughs> once it's here. <laughs> yeah, well, no, they. I mean, they're going to take super good care of it, obviously. But um, you know, as much as they, um, you know, and and it, there's like I said, there's a whole bunch of steps to make sure that they they keep as much sample as they they possibly can. So, so as this kind of mission comes to like a close and the sample gets returned, I mean, there's a POF is coming, so I guess it will be ongoing, but I guess the primary mission has been completed. Kind of what have you kind of shifted to work on now and, you know, what kind of projects are you looking to take on, uh, I guess, in the near future? Yeah. So um, I guess my role at MDA has shifted a little bit. I still, I still do systems engineering, um, you know, as I've, kind of become a bit more senior um, at the division I I take on a role of sort of um, a bit more of a mentor or sort of like a reviewer um, I would really love to see us do more planetary missions um, it's it's exciting you know these missions kind of they last sometimes over decades um, and you know I would really like you know um, kind of in the background, working on proposals that hopefully lead to more of these missions, you know, um, you know, for, for Canada, um, there's, there's lots of, you know, exciting stuff that's still going on. Uh, there's another instrument we did called the alpha particle X-ray spectrometer, which is on the curiosity Rover. That's still roving around after 10 years. Um, our competitor a company called Canadensis has got a, a lunar Rover that they're uh, hoping to land on the moon. I think it's uh, 2026 or 27. I can't remember now. So that's going to be super exciting, you know, that um, that Canada's now going to have a, a rover running around. And and all of it together, you know, just, um, um, you know, and, and again, from my perspective, uh, you know, like, let's let's just keep going and let's just keep exploring. And there's there's lots of opportunities with different NASA missions to to go to other planetary bodies and, and keep it going. And and then there's this whole other array of like uh, things on the horizon where the resource utilization where they're looking at mining different things including the moon's surface or possibly asteroids and you know um it's the ultimate green technology we're not polluting the earth at all we're just uh, we're going to take stuff off of uh you know asteroids or, or the moon and, and, and just keep exploring from there so it's a really exciting time right now to be involved in in space um, and it's, you know, it, the, the potential for growth is just absolutely humongous. And, and uh, once it takes off, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be living in the expanse, basically. So um, in the expanse, in the expanse, you watch yeah. the show? Yeah, <laughs> of, of course I watch this show. Come on. We talk about it a lot, actually. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I, I've also put uh, Theo on to watching the show for all mankind, which. Uh, yeah, that's excellent. Sure yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess speaking of uh, these more hypothetical scenarios, we just kind of want to end off on a bit of a more fun question. So, uh, and which might become more of a reality soon, like you said, um, is would you go to space if you had a chance? Uh, yeah, I would definitely love to go to space. Um, you know, something like um, the moon would be absolutely amazing. Mars is a ways off and yeah. it seems like a bit of a one trip right now and i'm probably <laughs> not as interested as dying on a different planet but yeah. uh yeah but definitely like you know some sort of orbital type you know thing going into you know either iss or you know there's like space hotels that are oh, yeah. coming up that yeah. would be absolutely fantastic space tourism or 
space tourism, yeah, or even a shot just around the moon would be absolutely phenomenal. Like anything like that would just be amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you're not scared at all. Um, yeah, you got to go sometime. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, but you know, it's um, it's like it, talking it's, about another country. You know, just yeah, got to yeah, go yeah. sometime. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. So, uh, no, I. I think uh, you know it's the the technology is just going to keep improving and and the safety is going to you know it's it's very safe like there there's a, there's a lot of effort put into keeping humans safe in space so um, so touch wood that, that nothing you know continues uh, that track record that they've had so okay well uh, I guess that kind of brings us towards the end of our episode. And Do you have anything so to say like, to the to the people, Cam? Any any last uh, thoughts? Words or, of wisdom. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would just say uh, to people that are interested in getting into space to uh, to kind of dream big and and you know um, there's there's lots of different ways to get into the space sort of um, uh, you know domain and it 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 it's, could be as simple as just sort of following different missions that are happening all the way through to you know like you guys are doing and, and looking at jobs in either engineering or planetary science um and you know just just dream big and and um you know and just keep kind of keep pushing one of the things i've learned is that you know for for certain things you just have to kind of keep pushing on it and um things will happen it just you know it, it takes time these things are expensive and people uh, you know, when big dollars are involved, they want to make sure that the money's spent judiciously, which I do get. So you, but, you know, you just have to kind of just keep rolling with the punches and just keep pushing the ball down the field and you'll get there. So. Rolling with okay. the punches. Rolling with the punches. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess uh, on our part, that, that brings our episode to a close. But, but thank you. Thanks to Cam for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Yeah. And, uh, well, we hope to hear about, I guess, many more Canadian firsts or other firsts from your yourself and MDA. Yeah. And for everyone who's listening, follow up with the OSIRIS-REx sample return. September 24th of this year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Cam. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore the sound of space and LinkedIn at the sound of space. Continue the conversation and let us know your thoughts on all things aerospace. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the sound of space.